you have to get used to doing something you don't want to do. Anything I learned in college, the thing that I learned most is how to complete a task I didn't really want to do. Now, I'll get myself assigned a story or working on a book that I say I want to do. And there's like the during, I don't always want to do it because it's hard. You know, you do feel like you're banging your head against the wall. You do wonder if it's any good. You do have self-doubt almost every day. I mean, Stephen King writes about still having self-doubt every day. You know, he's the most successful writer maybe ever. So if he can have self-doubt, then I think it's okay for us to have self-doubt. And, you know, the way he tells it is that's part of what you're getting paid for, dealing with that and learning how to compartmentalize that and do it anyway. I love interviewing authors and journalists, especially ones who cover sports like freediving and rock climbing. These are my people, which is why I was so excited to chat with Adam Skolnick. Adam is an award-winning independent journalist and author covering adventure sports, environmental issues, travel, and human rights for publications like the New York Times, Outside, Playboy, and Lonely Planet. He's the author of the book One Breath, Freediving, Death in the Quest to Shatter Human Limits, and he was the ghostwriter and narrator of David Goggins' smash hit memoir and audiobook, Can't Hurt Me, Master Your Mind and Defy the Odds. He's also a co-host on the Rich Roll podcast. I talked to Adam about his writing process and how writing brings him joy. We also talk about his journey of writing and also to self-publish and ghostwrite one of the best-selling books ever. This was such a helpful and enjoyable episode for me. I really hope it is for you too. If you want to make a living as a writer or a living doing what you love or you like challenging yourself, David Goggins style, this is a great episode. At the end, I have some extra notes Adam shared, so listen all the way through, especially if you want to be a writer. Before we begin, this podcast was brought to you by FX Chocolate. If you've been listening to this show, these guys have been supporting since day one. My buddy Jess works there, and the company is literally all about vitamin joy. It's a vitamin that is made with chocolate. So FX Chocolate makes squares of individually packaged, sugar-free, keto-friendly, vegan dark chocolate, which is packed with nutraceutical ingredients, so you can perform your best. I've been on a bit of a focus streak lately. It's one of the FX chocolate blends. It comes in a dark square and it has ashwagandha inside, which is a great nutraceutical that definitely helps you focus. And let me tell you, taking a vitamin inside of a delicious chocolate square is an amazing way to take a vitamin. FX Chocolate also has other blends like Exhale. They have one with melatonin that helps for sleeping, another with CBD called Zen, and they're coming out with one that has vitamin D inside, and I'm really excited to try that one. You can go to fxchocolate.com. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off at checkout if you enter the code VITAMINJOY, one word. That's fxchocolate.com. Enter code VITAMINJOY at checkout. They make great gifts and they're really good to take as a dessert or throughout the day. I'm Shelby Stanger and this is Vitamin Joy. Adam Skolnick, welcome to Vitamin Joy. Hey, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Excited to have you. You've written so many books I love. 
Really? So I, I'm really, yeah. I mean, you wrote, you know, Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me, One Breath, Freediving, Death and Quest to Shatter Human Limits. So I want to ask you how you got into writing, but first, like, what is your writing process? So uh, I think there's two processes. There's the research process and then there's the writing process. So for a long time, they've been, I've, I've always treated them separately and, and the research gathering period doesn't include a whole lot of writing. Maybe I'll be doing like random notes and ideas in my phone, but I don't sit in front of the computer and do it. Wait, time out. So with research, you will go somewhere, actually do the research and then you handwrite your notes? So, well, I used to do that, right? So, I mean, that things have evolved over time as yeah. my Luddite brain has slowly been uh, warped into the matrix. But uh, it used to be I'd go on the road and I'd fill reporter notebooks, you know, I'd take stacks okay. of them, exactly, and just, uh, and just take them and fill them. And then I would sit down in front of the computer and, and figure out what I have and transcribe anything I have on tape and, and put all that together into one big master notes document. And then I would uh, create an outline for whatever I'm writing and kind of plug it all in. Um, doing Lonely Planet was a little different than that because you're following an established format. And so then I'm just kind of taking notes in my notebook of every place I visited that could fit into the next Lonely Planet edition. So I didn't have to make a master notes document for that. And the deadlines were too tight to do that anyway. But, you know, any sort of long form journalism, that's how I used to do it. And I still kind of do some of that. Now I'm taking all my notes in my phone primarily. Sometimes I will, I'll create an outline and plug in pieces from my notes or from the interviews, transcribed interviews, and plug them directly into the section in the outline that I'm working on so that it's right there in front of me. So those are kind of the techniques I use shorthand, but it still really divides up between um, research and writing. And research doesn't have to be on the ground now. Like if anyone's read New York Times stuff I've done, like the Maya Gabera wave or um, recent freediving records or the K2 thing, um, all of that was done from the desk. So uh, the research period in those, in, during that time is reading as much as I can about everything that's been reported on whoever I'm working on. And then, uh, you know, interviewing as many people as possible and getting those interviews. And then once that's all on tape and it's all transcribed, then I get into the document. So that same process can work for a breaking news story or for, you know, a long lead story or a book. I love talking to journalists because I really miss that part of my life. Um, okay, then what about your actual writing process? Is it just I sit at a desk and I get up at a certain time and I write no matter what. I'm, I'm curious because you are prolific. You write well. You write in a voice that I understand. Like you're not super academic and you're not douchey. You're not like <laughs> core. You're just like cool. Like I'm not I like core. It. You, I'm definitely not core. You're I'm not like, like <laughs> trying hard. I, I think that's what I like about your writing and it's it's factual, but it's like easy to read. Oh, thank and you. Engaging. Thank you. So what's your process? You're welcome. Um, so I think early on, when I first started writing, I felt like I had to kind of force a voice and it wasn't even a very loose voice. Like at least with core voice, you're trying to be cool. It's At least you're trying to be entertaining. You're not trying to um, sound like you know everything. And I think I was a little stilted in my early stuff. And then it's early on, someone had this great advice, which is just write how you talk. And so that kind of became my mantra, write how you talk. And, uh, and so I still try to do that. And I think the more you write, the thing about writing is the more you do it, 
it's a muscle. So like when you first start, it's not going to be that great. I don't care. I mean, you could, you could be talented at turning a phrase, but what it's different telling a story than like journaling or stream of consciousness. So, you know, stream of consciousness, I was always very comfortable and I was kind of out there, but then once I tried to tell a story, I wasn't so good at it. So, um, it takes time, but once you do it, I think that becomes second nature, writing how you talk and, and, um, and so the process is, is the same. It's like you, you create, I always outline. It's very rare that I don't. I mean, occasionally maybe I won't. If it's like a breaking news story and it's just starting to flow, um, I know what my lead is or whatever. The lead is the, you know, for people who are listening, the lead is what uh, editors would call the opening of a story. Um, and, you know, typically when I'm doing, especially adventure sports stories, you know, the lead has to be gripping because you, you want to get people who even aren't into that sport to continue to read it. So you have the lead, you have that in mind, and then you outline it out. Um, I'm not really stiff about how the outline goes. In fact, I tend to overwrite. So I kind of overreport and overwrite. So that's part of my process. I will interview 10 people, if, even if I only need three sources, I will, inter I will get as much information as I can because it's kind of the way I don't have writer's block. I was just going to say, that's the only time I've had writer's block is when I don't have enough information and then yeah. I stress out and I realize I just don't have enough information. But are you writing on a computer or on a pad of paper? So, yeah, so I'm writing if I'm um, just if I'm ready to write, I'm on the computer. So I have an, a MacBook Air. And that's, that's what I use. And I sit at my desk and I give myself a quota for the day. So during the Lonely Planet days, the deadlines were so tight that I was kind of writing 3000 words a day. So that became kind of, oh. that became kind of my, and you work up to it. If you haven't been, if it's been two months on the road researching, you haven't written in a little bit, the first day is going to be 1500 words or 1200 words. And then you kind of ramp up. And then once you get into the groove, you're churning out 3000 words a day. And that's how it's it like was. It's like six pages, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it depends on double space and all that. So mm -hmm. I, I just kind of look at it as words per day. And then that's how I did it with one breath. You know, I, I, I did a, almost a year for or maybe eight months of research. And then it came time and I had, you know, six weeks to write the book. And uh, maybe it was, you know, maybe it was 10 weeks to write the book. And so I had to do 3000 words a day. So that's what I did. And so that's amazing. You give yourself that. And then and then, of course, when you write a first draft, it's never good. You know, that's just the way it is, especially if it's a book, because you're going to you're going to repeat yourself. Not every phrase will be great. So there'll be some great stuff in it, but it'll be clunky in a, a lot of places. So you, the rewriting is key. So if it's just an article, I will do three passes before I file it with an editor. If it's a book, I'll do several more. That's so cool. I, I love hearing your process because I have always done something similar. And if I don't have an outline, I'm like paralyzed. Yeah, I have it's to really outline. Hard. I have to outline. I mean, I think the only day that like recent times where I didn't outline was this K2 story for the New York Times. The first guys to do K2 in winter, the, the Nepalese climbers, yeah. you know, led by Nims Perja, who is uh, an amazing athlete. So that story, I think I... I had been doing a lot of over-research. I interviewed people that I couldn't even quote, but I was ready. So um, and it was a breaking news story. So I just sat down and started. And you got the big guys in there. You got Jimmy Chin. Yes. You had a quote from, I, I read it last night. It's a great story. Uh, Renan. Fascinating. Yeah, Renan. Renan yeah. yeah, yeah, Renan and Jimmy. That was great. That's awesome. Yeah. So 
what about when you okay wait, one more question about your outline yeah. is it how, how how in depth is your outline is it a page is it a couple pages um yeah it's like it ends up being like broken down into you know anywhere from five to ten sections it's not in depth really it's just topics kind of what's going to happen and a couple bullet points Okay, so it's not like Roman numeral one. It is. Ro it is Roman numeral it is. one. I thought no you way. Said, <laughs> it is Roman numeral one, but I, I, I kind of yeah, it is one, and then A, B, C, but I don't, it does, I don't go into the little Roman numerals. I never get into okay. the eyes. <laughs> that is proper. That means you were trained in the '80s on how to do an outline. <laughs> that means I'm old. No, I'm, I was born in 1980. I don't know what year you were born in. But uh, before 1980. So you went to school in the 80s. That's how you were learned how to do an outline. I wonder if kids do that now. It's a very good Message question. Message me how you do an outline. I'm very curious. <laughs> but the, outli the outline should be, you know, it can just be bullet points too. So for people out there, the Roman numerals, just because exactly that, it's just in, it's like been ingrained in my psyche. But certainly... Any out the structure of the outline doesn't matter as long as you realize there's bones and then you add the flesh. So the bones are what you're trying to lay out and then the flesh is all the good stuff. Um, and so then you, you kind of put it in there. And I always, like I say, I, my first draft for like a 2,000 word story will invariably be 2,800 words, 3,000 words. Or for a 1,200 word story, typically I'll turn in 1,600 words. And that's not because I want to, it's just how it comes out. And so... I don't try to worry about word count so much because if I turned in 1,200 lean, they would ask me questions that would be in my 1,600 word draft. So I try to get it down. I don't want to be offensive and give them 2,000, 2,500 words. That's not, that's like, I got to do some, some of my own cuts and my own work. But at that point, if it's close enough, I, I let the editors have it. So what about with David Goggins' book? I mean, that is something different. You ghost wrote, had you ever ghost wrote a book before and how did no. that come about so uh that came about was uh, uh my my agent <clears throat> uh hooked me up with with david um he was representing david at the time and uh i was it was after one breath and i was back in the lonely planet grind because i just like one breath didn't sell as well as i'd hoped and my follow-up book did not find a home so then i was kind of like broke ass again. <laughs> I was like inching back towards the eviction nose phase that I thought was long in the in, in the past. What was your follow-up book? It was it was something called Hack the Vote. I had this angle on uh, mm. 2016, which still hasn't really been fully reported out that I thought was interesting. And it included gerrymandering and all sorts, but also included voting machines and potential fraud and like kind of how that whole world works and Russia hacking and all that stuff. But I think I was just angry. I was angry at how it all turned out and you know because that's okay i'm still a little bit angry at, at like the world sometimes so uh, i know this is vitamin joy but you know the anger is good because it makes you feel joyful later <laughs> I think. well it's no i contrast. think anger pushes us to do stuff and yeah. i actually just did this podcast on anger and how when we don't release it it can like really mess with us in a lot of ways but like anger is not a terrible emotion it's one that like it's harder to feel I think sometimes is a, I mean, it's just not a popular emotion, but 
it does propel us into action no, a I lot think of you're times. Right. I mean, you were you were about to say that women are are less yeah, women. women are less allowed to be publicly angry. I think, or they're like yes, they they sure. get much more blowback if if their anger goes public, whereas men yep. are kind of lauded for being determined or whatever. Or you know, it's trying not to play the girl card here. But no, it's true. It's, I right. think it's one hundred percent true. Um, mm. So I was having a temper tantrum about the two thousand sixteen election, <laughs> and I put it all into a book proposal that didn't sell. And then I got, like, by the time I came up for air, like, in May, I realized I'd spent the last of my one breath advance, and I had a big rent bill to pay, and I was kind of, like, behind the eight ball. So I got busy and started hustling, and then by the end of that year, I was still in a hole, and this opportunity to ghostwrite David's book came across my desk. And so, you know, I knew of him from the Ritual podcast interview, and my now wife, then girlfriend, April, and I were talking about, like, you know, like, let's Goggins it. Like, if we didn't want to go for a run, let's Goggins it. Because, you know, th- there was so much in that initial interview that that ended up in the book, whether it's getting through SEAL training on broken legs or the 100-mile race with no training. Those are the two things that stuck out. And so when you hear that and you hear him tell it, you realize that your excuses are, are nothing compared to what he's able to prove you can do in the human body. And so... You know, based on that interview alone, I was really interested in connecting with him. And so then it worked out. So we we did a book proposal. Um, he got an advance. He accepted it um, at first verbally, but then the contract language didn't come through for several weeks. And in, in that time, he was kind of deciding that he wanted to own his story. And I'm not saying anything that he hasn't said publicly, but he wanted to own his story. He just felt uncomfortable working with a publishing house who didn't really have a connection to his story. And he was willing to have a book that wasn't successful just so he could own his story. And so he decided to self-publish. And at the time it was scary for me because like I was, I was, I was like, okay, we'd done the initial work and I wanted to do it, but I also wanted to work with a publisher because in my mind, that was the way it should be done. And especially when you have a book of his caliber, like I thought it would be the best thing for his book. And thankfully he didn't listen to me (laughs) because, you know, the book is now a 3 million copies have been sold, over 3 million sold. And the audio book, I was able to narrate with him and then interview him in between. And the audio book is like the biggest seller of all the formats. And um, all because he decided to do it his way and the book, and of course, the story is amazing. And the research process, which you we were getting into, is it was like me being at a one-man show and just having David kind of tell stories. And he's a master storyteller. So I was in the front row seat hitting record and getting to ask questions. And um, we created a, a book that has helped a lot of people, So, which I always knew it would. And that's why it was really exciting to be a part of. That is so badass. Where did you guys do these interviews? We did it um, mostly over the phone. Yeah, oh, wow. we, we did a couple in-person sessions early on. And after that, it was all over the phone. I was on the phone with them four days a week for, you know, hours at a time. And then, again, that was the research period. And then I did the write-up. And during the write-up, I would um, send him chapter by chapter. And then we would go back through and edit the chapter. And then we would just kind of stockpile them up. And at the end, with the manuscript, he kind of poured over it with a fine-tooth comb. And we you know, talked about language and we, and we just had our long sessions and and got it put together. And he did a great job. Him and Jennifer Kish, who's his manager, did an amazing job getting an indie, basically a a self-publishing kind of 
something called scribe media where you can publish through them and they make it look exactly like it came from a, a big five publisher and they rent they they worked with a professional audiobook recording studio and we did everything tip top and he spent more than he would have got in his advance from harper collins to make this thing look and and sound perfect and then you know he did the rest by going on a ton of podcasts got a lot of early early buzz from these podcast world but he wasn't really you know he was on i think cbs but he didn't get a lot of like you know mainstream media shine but it didn't matter i mean it became new york times bestseller and it's been on the amazon top seller list for two years running so it's it's uh you know it's one of those books there's so much there that's so cool and congratulations mm, thank you i mean i think one thing is is you guys took a huge risk you were like unwavering in your desire to tell your story the way you wanted to tell it but also you invested in yourself which is like it's scary to invest in yourself yeah well i mean all props to him i mean i was one of the i, I was being invested in and he was investing in himself and he and he knew that and um and then he trusted me and uh and we just had a really good working relationship when we're when we're writing stories down it was just like it was flowing and he comes across super intense to a lot of people and they think like how intense he must be. But he, to be honest with you, I've never had an easier working relationship with anybody. And that's the truth in terms of like collaboration and writing everything out. It was always smooth. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. And he's more, well, ch more chill than people realize. <laughs> Very chill. I'm sure he yeah, is. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I'm sure he's not like, you can't be like, I'm going to run four or five. <laughs> Four by 48 every yes. single hour of the day. So no, I'm sure, no, no. I'm sure there's a soft side to him as well. Yeah. So how does, you know, for me, writing is a little bit like running. Like I like it, but I mm -hmm. always like it more when I'm done. Yes. Although I love the research <laughs> part. That's true. Yes, that's a good how, point. How do you, like, how does it bring you joy? No, that's true. I mean, no. you know, I think that's true. But just like in running and writing, there's moments where it is flowing and it feels good during but a lot of times it doesn't and a lot of times you're just you're just pounding your way through it and at the end you got the runner's high or the rider's high so i think that most of the time it's exactly how you described but like we all know who run or create anything there's moments where you do capture it in the middle um and but those are fleeting and so you have to get used to doing something you don't want to do if, if anything I learned in college, the thing that I learned most is how to complete a task I didn't really want to do. And now I'll get myself assigned a story or working on a book that I say I want to do. And there's like the during, I don't always want to do it because it's hard. You know, you do feel like you're banging your head against the wall. You do wonder if it's any good. You do have self-doubt almost every day. I mean, Stephen King writes about still having self-doubt every day. If Stephen King can have self-doubt, you know, he's the most successful writer maybe ever. So if he can have a self-doubt, then, um, then I think it's okay for us to have self-doubt. And, you know, the, the way he tells it is that's part of what you're getting paid for, dealing with that and learning how to compartmentalize that and do it anyway. And so, yes, it's not always a fun task at the time. The joy is in the expression. The joy is in the end when you get to tell it and you get to share it. Um, and then sometimes it is in the in the creation too. You can feel really good about a, a phrase or how it turns out or how, how it's flowing. There are days where it does feel that way. But the first draft rarely feels that way. It's just rare. 
That's so interesting. So when you're with, like, I know when I've interviewed certain athletes, there's just, there's been a few people I've interviewed and I just feel, I just feel pushed to be a better version of myself than I am. And like one of those people for me has been Bethany Hamilton. Yeah. She's just like an incredible human to hang around. Um, another was Alex Honnold. Like I really mm. enjoyed, it was just a moment of time I had with him, but like he was just was really stoked on life that day. Is it a trade show? But I just felt like I could be a better version of myself. Mm. Do you get that from like, how has working with David Goggins changed you personally? That's a good question. Uh, an easy answer is I just did the four by four by 48. So I did, I ran four miles every four hours for 48 hours. So I ran 48 miles in two days. I mean, that's something I never thought I would do. And I had, you know, I've, I've had foot problems for years now and I let that kind of limit how much running I would do. Then the pandemic hit and couldn't get to the beach. The beaches were closed. And so I was running more and more. And um, I just kind of decided to deal with the pain instead of like let it, letting it stop me. And that's directly attributable to David. And then even just doing the four by four, because we have a, a seven month old baby at home. And so at first I thought, you know, it's probably can't do that right now. I need to be more available. Um, but then I, I ventured, I actually told David I was thinking about doing it. Once I mentioned that, it was like basically game on, like you can't not do it. And so uh, my wife really helped kind of like held down the fort and she even ran with the baby 16 of those miles with me, kind of as a pacer and made sure that all my nutrition was dialed in. And so that's probably, you know, doing that, like even wanting to do it and then going to do it, dealing with the sleep deprivation uh, having the faith and confidence in my work and in just my ability to tell stories, I think has ramped up and just my own capabilities. So I think there's just like subtle confidence boosts that come from working with a guy like that over the course of a period of time where you can kind of feel how he tackles life and see how he tackles problems and how, how he deals with the day to day that's bound to rub off on you. And then like the bigger things like taking on these like bigger running projects or whatever. Uh, I think that has something to do with it too. So I think it's been more subtle though than, than not. And I think it comes with having like, obviously the biggest impact is, is this book has allowed me to not stress about what my next job's going to be for, for the foreseeable future. So that allows me to kind of the creative space to work on stuff I want to work on and, um, and so that's probably the biggest impact. That's awesome. Having yeah. like, you know, everybody thinks being a writer is easy and you can make money. <laughs> right. I, I'd, I'd love I don't know who to... thinks that. Who's, who are those well, people? <laughs> I, I thought that. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I was jaded. Like in journalism, I, I tell this story a lot and I'm, I'm a little bitter at my, my professor, but you know, I had this great professor and he was an author and he had lived in a fat house in Atlanta right to Emory I did everything right I worked at CNN in college I worked for newspapers in South Africa I was like very young trajectory you. journalist yeah I was killing you were a it superstar. But like, I just thought that I would be easy like to make a living doing it and then my first job offer was like 19 grand at the LA Times and I was like no but that professor who had a really nice house and was an author and a Atlanta Constitution reporter was married to the heir to the biggest banking family in the world. So like, Oh, like most I just smart didn't realize writers. his situation. Like <laughs> I didn't realize, you know, so right. I think if you're listening to this podcast and you want to be a writer is not easy financially to make it as a writer. And a professor told me that. And I wanted so bad to prove him wrong for the rest of my career. And I was like, I'm going to be a freelance writer and prove you wrong. And 
He was right. It's not an easy way to make a living. I'm being a real estate agent right now in Southern California. It's a way better way to make a living. Yes. I just remember Mark Twain died bankrupt. So, and that was Mark Twain. Uh, And also, I think Herman Melville quit writing and became a customs officer. That was after he wrote Moby Dick. Wow, that's fascinating. I go back and forth. I'm like, I'm going to do PR. I'm going to. So, you know, you know, it's not easy, but that doesn't mean don't do it. And also, obviously, they had life choices that I'm not privy to, but it just shows me like the fact that that even happened is like baffling to me. I mean, in Mark Twain's uh, situation, I think he made some pretty dodgy investments. So I think that's what that was about. But um, I I and and Moby Dick was not a big seller while while Herman Melville was alive. It wasn't a huge seller. But uh, at least that's what my I think that's true. You might have to cut that. But I think that's true. We don't cut things now. We're just going to leave them. Back check it yourself. Um, So so that's how fake news gets spread, huh? So I have have a question. So now you're now you're podcasting a little bit. Yes. For me, when I found podcasting, I was like, this is awesome. I get to do the interview part and you don't have to actually write the story. And you have a great podcast voice. Are you enjoying it? Do you love it? Yeah. I mean, I I enjoy it. I mean, it's totally different. Like it's, it's a little bit more talking heads. Like I'm, I'm, I'm working with Rich Roll twice a month. I'm on the podcast with Rich Roll and it's really great because he's got this audience that's there and it's kind of more of a community than just an audience. And I'm, I'm kind of there to explore topics that Rich wants to talk about in more detail that he can't do when a guest is sitting across from him. So it becomes a different format for him that has proven to be, you know, embraced by his, by his, uh, listeners. So that's fun. And it's a, it's a total departure for me. And it's a different way of, of approaching subject matter, uh, without having to do the full on the ground reporting, you can do a little bit and you can do a lot of reading and you can get yourself primed for it and you can just have fun. You sit down and just download it. Uh, whatever comes out of your head through your mouth. But that's also the challenge I found is like you go into it thinking you're going to want to make a statement like X, Y, and Z and you have your notes and then you're kind of stuck with what you say and it's not always exactly how you want it. So as a writer, you know, you have, you have that delete button. (laughs) Well, he doesn't edit either. Like I'll edit my podcast when I completely mess up. So, you know, vitamin joy, we're, we're we're not always perfect. Sometimes I have to delete when I, say too many weed yes. jokes or yes. too much yeah so well that's really cool but that's fun it's like it's my descent into talking headdom that's where all journalists wind up as talking heads somewhere right i would um, love to be a talking head please hire me and if anybody you wants, are a talking head well kind of but i want someone to be my adam skolnick and like talk to me every day so i can talk about these topics that are totally different than what you guys talk about but um but can i go back I a little really cool. what, a little yeah. thing on the on the writing and success and all of that i think that you know, when we're talking about financial rewards connected to writing, there's no straight line to get there. And it's the, anyway, it's, it's, it's impossible to think of it that way because it's, it requires so much of you just to be a professional writer. Like you have to have so much faith in yourself. You have to deal with that doubt. And then you have to figure out how to keep the lights on while you're working on these bigger projects. But if you can do that and you can keep the lights on, you give yourself opportunities and then then it becomes about timing. And there was a lot that happened in terms of David turning down the, the deal and deciding to self-publish that allowed him to publish the book sooner, which enabled him to get it out, you know, at a time when the, the, everyone really wanted it, you know. And who knows if the book went through HarperCollins and it was published in May instead of December, 
would that have sold as many copies? It's impossible to know. Like timing is so crucial to all of this and you can't control that. You can try to kind of gauge it, but you can't really control the timing and, and how that is going to factor in. So the best you can do is do the best work you can and not be attached to the financial rewards as much as you can. You know, obviously you need to earn a living. But I think to me, I've always looked at it like life was about more than earning the living. It was about having, a, having an adventurous life that kept you interested in living. And, uh, you know, because growing up, my dad wasn't always in love with his job. He was, you know, we had, we were comfortable, but he wasn't comfortable necessarily in his life all the time. And I remember that as from my teenage years. And so kind of my whole life has been about not, not going down that same road. But the funny part is, if you ask any of my siblings who works as much as my dad, it's probably me. Like I ended up, I ended up working like more than, than my siblings to have this life that is a little bit, I think, more free, but is it? You know, so it's funny, but I, I do feel like I've been able to do things and see things I could not have done had I not been writing. And it's if you like traveling, you know, to travel as a journalist or a travel writer, you see the world so much differently and so in so much more depth. And so to me, it's been about the experiences uh, overall. That's really cool. How did you get into writing? And really quick, what did your dad do for work? Uh, he's a probate attorney. Oh, wow. Attorney. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's a, not an easy job. So how did you get into writing? Um, I got into writing. I was, uh, I was working in an environmental nonprofit in LA called tree people. I was planting trees with kids, kids at schools, which was very joyful, not lucrative, but fun. And then I kind of like, hit a snag with a supervisor there and kind of like got me thinking, what am I really going to do though? You know, this is fun, but like, what's my thing. And I love traveling and I did do a lot of kind of journaling and stream of consciousness, kind of like bad beat poetry. And, but I knew I could write, but I just had never really tried to write stories. And I went to Africa to climb Kilimanjaro, kind of took like a three, four week break from that job. And while I was over there, I, I decided I wanted to try to write my way around the world. So I came back and I walked Wilshire, Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in LA from beginning to end and wrote a story about that. And that got me my first commission to do kind of a walking tour story in East LA. And um, little by little, I tried trying to kind of piece together um, jobs, really low paying kind of entry level journalism jobs, like freelance stories here and there. And I was able to do that. I think at the same time I was trying to write movies, I quit that tree people job and moved to Boulder to write movies with a buddy of mine, Kelton Reed, who has a podcast now called Writer Files. You could find him there. And so we didn't really do very well in Hollywood, but at the same time I was continuing to like do these mostly health and travel and wellness kind of stories for like alternative media. And 2004, I kind of bundled a bunch of stories together, no expenses, but some store assignments. And I went to Indonesia and it was right during when Jakarta was still kind of, they had a lot of uh, suicide mm -hmm. attacks in, in Bali and Jakarta and elsewhere in Indonesia. And so it was on the, it was on the watch list, the state department watch list. So, and we didn't really, there weren't that many American journalists covering Indonesia. So I went over there to do some stories and um, came home with like more than three or four stories. I think I had like 10 stories and that got me in with outside magazine and just slowly, but surely 
I was able to kind of build build a network. You know, I think I launched, I helped launch LA Yoga Magazine in the early 2000s too. So I was kind of like working in that yoga wellness space, which got me into the travel space. And then hooking up with Lonely Planet in 2007 is kind of really what enabled me to do it well, because I was able to finally make a decent living doing it and, and go to parts of the world I wouldn't otherwise see, which allowed me to find other stories for magazines. And it kind of just picked up steam from there. That's awesome. And then in like in 2013, I ended up at this freediving competition in the Bahamas and the, mm. the best American died at this competition, the only person to ever die at a competition. And he was right there in front of us. And that was my first New York Times story. And, and that became one breath. So that's kind of the, the short version. Well, Adam, you have like an incredible career. You crush it as a writer. I love reading your stories, your books, your pieces, listening to you on podcasts. I hope you have your own podcast soon, maybe. I, I I hope so. We're, I'm working on a narrative non a narrative idea, narrative storytelling. Well, thing, if you ever so we'll need a, a girl to help help be your like what what is it called like hype, your, hype, your hype woman hype, hype woman. woman. Let me know. Um, <laughs> I ask all the guests who come on this show um, any 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 advice to get more vitamin joy or how to make a living doing what you what you love. Like advice to listeners. Well, first of all, I I for me I feel my most joyful when I feel small and the world feels big. So um, to me, that means getting out into nature and focusing on, on the beauty in your life. Um, so you can do it in nature. You can just do it in, in kind of sitting in a room. But if you focus on the beautiful things in your life, what's working and what's beautiful about living, uh, I think that can be a snowball effect in your brain to really get you to love life. And it takes focus sometimes because sometimes life can be hard. So if you focus on the beautiful and on, on what's working in your life and, and, and in the world, I think you'll find that no matter what we see and all the, all the pain that's out there, the good and the, the positivity outweighs it. It's just, it's just hard to find sometimes because we're just inundated with more and more content constantly. So get outside and get quiet and, and focus on the beauty. I think that's one thing in terms of work. Um, I would say, you know, it, it's, it's a tough one. Cause I was, I, I had this goal and I was able to kind of force my way through it, but it wasn't easy and you don't have to do it the way I did it. Kind of hacking your way in from the outside in, which is kind of how I did it. But I guess for work, joy and work, I think is, is in the day to day creating tasks for yourself, knocking them off one at a time, saying you're going to do something, then doing that thing. All of that can kind of build confidence in yourself and is worthy. So for me, the joy in the work, the joy in the day-to-day, -day, it's kind of like the Zen, like chop wood, carry water. If you keep it super simple, no matter what your task is and what you, what you do in the nine to five level, if you keep things simple, you don't try to think about things too deep. You don't try to try to look for meaning where there is none. Um, I think you'll find the meaning. So it's kind of this weird Zen koan where you like don't look for meaning and the meaning will find you. Um, that's how I look at it. I love it. Adam, it's been a joy to interview you. I love meeting fellow writers. You're so cool. Adam, thank you so much for coming on this show. I personally took so much from this interview. After this episode, I also realized I forgot to ask Adam where humor fits into his life. And he had a really good answer. We talked on the phone after and he said, well, 
It's in my life because life is one giant tragic comedy. It might be painful, but that doesn't mean it isn't funny. In his work, he said he doesn't have an agenda to fit humor in a forced way. He just tries to tell stories the best possible way he can. I also asked Adam another question about his schedule. I was like, do you just show up at 6 a.m. and start to write and, you know, make a schedule for yourself? And he said he's kind of tried all of that. At this point in his life, he has a kid. And so he tries to fit writing in the best he can between nine to five. And if he wants to go for a run or a swim in midday, he does. But, you know, there's still days where sometimes he has to research all day. And then after dinner, he gets to write. But, you know, right now he really tries to work within the day hours because he has a kid. As for selling stories, you know, Adam had a lot of really great advice in this podcast episode. And he also told me something after that, you know, there's two forms of currency if you're a freelancer. One is money because you need it to keep the lights on and to keep food in your fridge. And the other is visibility. So sometimes the right home for your story might be a home at a publication that doesn't pay as well, but could lead to a lot of other things. For example, his first gig where he sold a story to the New York Times, he ended up going to a free diving competition. It cost a lot of money to be there. He was there for about a week and a half. And I'm not totally sure if he broke even or not, but that was a really big story for him. And it led to a book. So you have to make those calculations on your own. And he suggested, and I would suggest this too, look at currency of visibility as a key component to when you're selling stories. As for his vitamin joy challenge, I love it. Focus on what's beautiful and what's working in your life and in the world right now. And it can have a snowball effect to really learning to love your life. It's not easy, but it's something worth the doing. So I'm going to challenge all of you to do that this week. I am definitely going to be doing that. You can find more on Adam Skolnick and his work at adamskolnick.com. And he's also at Adam Skolnick on Twitter and on Instagram. You can also find him on the Rich Roll Show. Thank you so much to my amazing audio editor, Jennifer McCord, for producing this show and Ariana Starkman for creating audiograms for it. The show is a labor of love. Special thanks also to FX Chocolate. Go to fxchocolate.com, enter code vitaminjoy at checkout for 20% off your order. And thank you for listening. I know listening to podcasts is a commitment in time and energy. There's a lot of podcasts out there in the world. So I really appreciate you for choosing Vitamin Joy. With that, if you get a chance, subscribe rate and review the show wherever you listen. They actually mean a lot to me. I read all of them personally. I love them. They help the show grow. And wherever you are in the world, don't forget to dose yourself with a little extra vitamin joy and spread some to others.